Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Yo! Welcome on in to another episode of The Selby Is Godcast. Hey girl, hey, what's up TJ? Hey, what's up brother? How are you? You're pretty fired up this week. Are you just so excited about what we've seen thus far this spring that you can't hold it in any longer? No, uh, it's allergy season for me and this is the first time I've had 30 seconds uh, without any sneezes all day. So uh, I'm just excited about that. All right, well, I'm going to start a little tally over here to my right. Every time you, you have a sneeze, well, I won't do a shot, but I will just put a little mark down here just so we have a, an accurate depiction of how just how sneezy you are by the end of this. Selby is Godcast drinking games. I think that's something uh, we can do in the future. Oh, yes. We probably should have thought ahead because, as you complained about before this podcast even started, what are we going to talk about? Well... If we would have already had a drinking game in place, this could have been a hell of a lot more fun. Every time we come across a roster decision we don't know the answer to, take a shot. Well, we'd only be like three shots in, so I don't know how drunk we'd actually get on that. But maybe every time we talk about the uncertainty of Michael Brantley, we could throw that in for sure. We would. Uh, let's see, what else could we, could we toss in? Anytime we, we certainly discuss the number of guys that don't have options do a shot. So if you, if you hear the word options, get drunk. What else could we toss in there? Well, I don't want to spend too much time diving into the roster because we're going to know a lot more. In the days after this podcast is posted, uh, maybe even the hours um but but i want to kind of talk about you know we 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 make such a big deal about this all spring because we have to what what else is there to talk about and everyone always sets their sights on opening day because it's the start of a new season even though the indians have always said it's not an arbitrary deadline for injured guys we know covering this team and looking at starting lineups that have colin cowgill and marlon bird and juan uribe in them on opening day that what your team looks like in August and September and even in June is a lot different than what it looks like on March 29th. But how much do you think this roster will change over the next six months? Because they have so much continuity on the roster and they really have the last few years. And yet it still seems that what we might see next what Thursday um, could be so, so different than what we see a couple months from now. I think that's certainly true, especially if some of these veterans make this roster. If we're, we're down to the end and we see a, a Belial or a Torres make this roster, there's a very real chance that both of them could be out uh, as soon as uh, a month or two in. Hell, even we saw Joba Chamberlain pitched pretty well for this team, but eventually they got to a point where they needed a roster spot, right? So 
I think the anytime you have those guys make the the team, you're hoping for the best, but you're also sort of preparing for the worst. And there's a reason why those guys are available on a minor league deal. So I think that's part of it. And the other question that you can't answer right now is who who is healthy at the outset? If Brantley's on the team, then that's not a change unless he gets injured again or has a setback. So that'll be something that we see at the end of the year. But there, then there's Brandon Geyer, who I won't say many people have forgotten about because I think people in the media have also forgotten about him. I mean, it's easy to forget when he's been off the radar for so long. But he was a big part of this team in 2016. And, God, they, they jumped off the bench. But I think until we know the health of some of, of the, the guys that are just hanging out in limbo, Salazar, Brantley, Geyer, that makes that tough to, to truly know. And then the other part of this, Zach, as you saw here when you were out early, a few more of the, the prospects were part of camp. Francisco Mejia, how much longer can they hold him down? At some point, his bat is going to scream that it's ready for the major leagues. And if, if he's even playing outfield even remotely well, and by that I mean just catching everything that's hit to him and not falling down on any ball that's hit to the right field corner, he's going to be up here at some point. Yanni Diaz is going to be up here at some point. So there's a lot of room for this roster to change, not only just by the time we get to the All-Star break, but I think within the first two months. Yeah, those two guys, the bats are ready. It's This roster, you're right, it's so weird because, like, their best hitters they don't have positions for, it seems like. And I'm I – there's no clear path to get those ready hitters into the lineup. I mean, where like Yanni Diaz is starting the season at AAA because they want him to stay at third base. Okay, well, guess what? The guy who is your starting third baseman was an MVP finalist. So his future on this roster isn't at third base unless Jose Ramirez is moving back to second. For Jose Ramirez to move back to second, you got to move Jason Kipnis somewhere, and he's under contract for two more years. So are you telling me that Yanni Diaz is going to have to hit 370 at AAA the next two years and just bide his time until there's a spot available? It, it seems weird. And with Mejia, it's the same thing. It's like they have made clear that they value defense at catcher. And Roberto Perez and Jan Gomes are going to be here. And if one of those guys gets hurt or traded, like Eric Haas might be the guy. So I, I don't see the clear path for Mejia either. And... It's just, it's so strange. It's why, like, to answer my own original question, like, I think I think there will be a lot of turnover. I think somehow Mejia will be in the mix come August and September, but I have done a lot of calculations on my calculator and <laughs> used my ruler and my protractor and my compass, and I've come up with no, nothing. I, I don't see I don't see the path for how those two guys get up here. It's a, it's a weird set up right now in the organization where you have so much depth in some areas and they have some, well, Mejia, you would consider a high end hitter. I don't know if you would consider Yandy Diaz that, but he certainly looks like an above average major league stick. And, and you have a, a, a Haas who's just biding his time at triple a and will be ready probably sooner than later. And Tito even spoke to yesterday, how surprised they were at how quick his development is coming. They didn't think he was going to be on the radar this fast. And yet, if, if they had an opening of catchers, you said he might be the guy because they trust him a little bit more behind the plate. And he got more extensive work with the pitchers this spring. So he's got that familiarity. 
And, he, and he's certainly got the pop and he's de demonstrated it at the spring. So they, they have a number of pieces that could end up being, if not impact guys, very solid contributors. And then they have parts of this roster where where's the depth. They don't have any at all. And starting pitching would be at the forefront of that. If they have an injury there and already Salazar is trying to work his way back, then you're down to Ryan Merritt, who we're still not even sure is going to make the opening day roster. And then what? I, I don't know. Is it Sean Morimondo? Is it Adam Plutko? Is it Shane Bieber? Is it Alexei Agondo? I, I, I don't know. None of those really seem like tremendous options there. So it's weird because it's certainly not an organization that has the cupboard bare. Um, and that a lot of teams that are in the Indians position where they've won for a couple of years, they can't, probably can't say that. They've tr probably at this point traded a lot of their youngsters to try to go win a World Series. The Indians still have some really solid pieces down on the farm. But it's the way that it's spread out is just kind of weird. Yeah, and then I look at the outfield, and like Michael Brantley, whenever he's healthy, this is his last year here, unless they sign him to an extension. But even then, you can never be sure. You, you're always a little worried he's going to be injured. Uh, Bradley Zimmer obviously has center field locked down. Uh, and then you look at right field, like Lonnie Chisenhall. This is his last year in Cleveland, most likely. Brandon Geyer is here. He's got an option for next season, but – you're waiting on him to get healthy and produce like he used to. So there's just there aren't a lot of there could be a lot of turnover in the outfield moving forward next year, and it makes sense why they want to test out Mejia in, in, in the outfield and, and see if he can do anything out there. Um, but it makes me wonder, like, okay, well, I guess I mean they've kind of done this with Tyler Naquin, where he's basically spent spent last year at AAA, and I think he's going to spend a lot of time this year at AAA, and then. Next year, he could have an opportunity to win a job out there in the outfield because Chisenhall could be gone, Brantley could be gone, maybe Geyer. Um, but, like, it makes me wonder, okay, well, why not try Yandy Diaz out there all spring? You knew he wasn't going to make the roster as the third baseman, so why not see if he can play corner outfield? First base and DH are blocked for the next two years. I mean, it's just – it's the – for a team that values versatility and a team that – you would think because they value versatility, they're able to get their best bats into the lineup. That's not the case. And it's, it's, it, it's kind of weird. Like you're right. They, they have a lot of depth in certain areas and maybe certain areas that aren't as important to have a lot of depth in. And then in other areas they don't. And because of that, it's, it's kind of handcuffing them and, and make, forcing them to make certain roster decisions that they might not want to make. I mean, it, it's, 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 like And the guys who are out of options play a role in this, too. I mean, they might have to carry Merritt on the major league roster because, A, they don't want to lose him, and, B, he, you're right, he's their, he's their sixth man. He's the only guy they have until Cody Anderson is healthy, which might not be till later this year. So it, it's, it's strange, and it's, it makes me think back to, like, how did we get to this point? It seems <laughs> like they had so much depth last year, and they had depth in all areas, and they had too many players. I mean, they – the guys they had to cut from the postseason roster were really good players. So it's, it's, it's a little bizarre and it's going to be interesting to see just how this roster evolves throughout the season. Well, I don't think the depth has changed too drastically from last year. You lose Santana, you lose Bruce and you lose Shaw. Craig and, Breslow. And they've lost Craig Breslow too. I know cleveland.com has reminded me this frequently. Um, so, I mean, those were important pieces. They weren't, irreplaceable pieces and I think they they have the depth from within to to cover those sorts of losses the the starting pitching depth is is going to be a question for me all year and if they make it through the year with 
six guys, then okay, <laughs> then they'll have they'll have gone the opposite way of what we usually see. Um, and then I'm still looking at that bullpen, just unsure of what to really really expect from from that group. I mean, if if Allen and Miller are Allen and Miller, they're going to be fine. But those those innings that were covered by Shaw that are now going to be covered by some combination of Otero, Goody, McAllister, Olsen. If, if any one of those guys or two of those guys or all of those guys aren't what they were last year and Belial and Torres, I mean, neither one of those guys have, has been truly terrific so far in spring. I, I, I don't know what the next line of defense is there. So I, I, I guess most of my – most of my concern about this roster and this organization for the entire year is the depth on that side. If they have injuries and we're talking about pitching, you usually do have some injuries there who are going to be the guys that step up. That's not to say some guys can't, I mean, this time last year, were we talking about Nick Goody? Hell no, but he ended up playing a huge role. Tyler Olson, who the hell is this guy coming up midway part of the year ended up being a, a mainstay in that bullpen in the final two months. So it's not to say it can't happen. It's just kind of worrisome now when you're looking at it and you don't know where those innings are going to come from. Yeah. I mean, I refuse to abort the Salazar bullpen bandwagon. Um, I I think that's the answer. And I think it's going to happen. And I think the Indians know that. I just think they still are not going to admit it until the last possible moment. So it, it, it's too simple to not happen. But the question is, like, that can't happen until someone does falter. They don't have spots. If we assume Ryan Merritt is going to be kept on this roster so that they don't lose him and so that they have starting pitching depth, then there are no openings. And so Salazar gets healthy. He's probably waiting for someone to falter because I don't think they're going to just bail on Zach McAllister or, or Ryan Merritt. Um, so it, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. And then like, at what point do you pull the plug on somebody and go get whoever's at AAA, whether it's like a Cam Hill or Preston Claiborne or Evan Marshall or whoever doesn't make the roster like Ogando, um, but agrees to go to AAA. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, they, they deal with this every year, but it's such a delicate balance and it's so, it's fascinating to me to see how a roster evolves. I mean, you mentioned Jabba Chamberlain and like, remember they went through how many lefties did they go through? Like Detweiler and uh, there's one other guy, Gorzolani. Mm-hmm. Like remember all the lefties they go through every year, and like you have to, you have to at least give a guy a chance to screw up before you can pull the plug and make a change. Like and so, what are the, what are the odds that Jeff Bellavo is making some appearances for the Indians this year? Because he's left-handed, and you never know, I guess. Yeah, so it's just it, it is it's important to have depth, but you also have to, you know, you you can't just bail on guys right away. Yeah, and so it's 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 going to be interesting because I, I'm really intri- intrigued to see what they do with Ryan Merritt because if you are protecting him so that you have some starting pitching depth, then you're basically not that you're wasting a spot, but you're you're short one spot of of that. You know, they've had that guy in the bullpen every year, like Sean Armstrong, who they can just send down I-71 and yep. call someone up when, when, they're, when they need an extra arm. And they're not going to have that this year if, yeah. if that's the route they go. 
Yeah, it's interesting because Nick Goody has an option. If he's pitching well, they're not going to send him down. But in his position, if he goes through a couple rough outings, he could be that guy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it, it could be just because of the makeup of the roster. It's tough being the one in the bullpen with options when they need that flexibility. And if everybody's pitching well and they're not going to want to lose somebody that's out there pitching well, then you could be the guy on the chopping block. It, it it's it is you're right. It is fascinating, and I think more than anything, when you see the final roster, you're like, okay, I, I could have seen this scenario. I can envision this. To me, the more interesting thing is the thought process on how they arrive there. Um, you know why they do certain things, and I think it, it indicates their their thoughts on certain players and. Even if they're not willing to say something out loud, their decision-making can indicate uh, something that speaks to the opposite. So that's why this, this week that we're in right now, where it's just before that last week and towards the end of this week, we're going to really probably have a lot of those things figured out. And even Wednesday, they're going to throw some of their, their mainstays in the bullpen in minor league games because they want to get a last look at some of these guys fighting for spots. And, and that means – at the end of this week, we're, we're, we're going to have all of the sample size that, that they get to make these decisions. It can be boring, and a lot of the, the regulars and the veterans are ready to get to spring training, but it can also be sort of intriguing because this is, this is when you kind of learn a lot about the organization and how they put things together. Yeah, I remember, you know, we, we play these guessing games every year, but there hasn't been a ton of uh, – there's been more – mystery I think this spring than in the last few years um, I think there was more there, there, like there was a lot of intrigue about the postseason roster mm-hmm. they had so many options ways they could go we didn't know if Brantley was healthy didn't know if Chisholm was healthy enough um, didn't think that they would just eliminate Goody Otero and McAllister from the postseason roster either and put Salazar and Clevenger in the bullpen so it, it kind of feels like that I mean just with, with some of the mystery and some of the you know, there are like some catch 22s here and there's some, some, some ripple effects um, that they're going to have to experience if, if they go certain directions. So it's going to be interesting. And, and again, like this might all be solved by the time a lot of people listen to this podcast. So we apologize for that. But um, I think the one thing to always keep in mind is that your lineup on March 29th is probably a lot different than your lineup on April 29th. And and especially when you like, if Michael Brantley starts the season on the disabled list, and I like, if I had, if you put a gun to my head right now and made me guess, I would probably say he does. And then he's his first game is the home opener. Like, just throw him on the ten day DL, retroactive to whenever, and let him skip the first week that road trip because you know who wants to spend five days in rainy Seattle in March anyway, and and then uh, he can play in Cleveland in front of the home fans uh, about a week into the season. Doesn't that make sense to you? It does, but I'm also feeling the opposite where he, I see the scenario where he makes the opening day roster and you hope that we don't have to go through this again. He's tired of talking about it. We're tired of asking about it. Tito, I'm sure is tired of getting the medical updates every friggin' day. You hope that this is the end of the road for these little injuries that build up and take their toll and eventually become big things for him. Um, but gun to my head, I'm saying he's on the opening day roster. And I think that speaks to sort of your point about sort of the, the misdirection of all of this. 
you and I can spend almost the same amount of time out here and come away with two completely different thoughts on what ends up happening. And maybe that's irresponsible on my part because he hasn't even played in a Cactus League game and he's scheduled to do that Wednesday. But he's been hitting this whole time. It's not like last year where he was going through his rehab and the last thing he could do was start to pick up a bat and actually swing it. All throughout this rehab where he hasn't been able to change directions when he's running. Do you think that's the same when he's walking too? Like, do they monitor how he walks? Hey, man, don't take that corner too, too quickly. We need you ready for opening day. He's been able to get – Talk to him later this week because I tweaked my knee on the treadmill yesterday. Oh no, knee brace ever since. Are have you progressed to land based activities or are you still on the anti gravity machine? Um, my life is an anti gravity machine. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, but he's been hitting this whole time. So how many cactus league at bats does he truly need? We've seen because of the type of hitter he is. It's not like he needs two weeks worth of at-bats to feel ready, probably, what, three, four games? Build yeah, but don't, don't you want to play? 15 to 20 at-bats? He's going to play a few innings. Then he's going to get an off day. Then he's going to play seven innings. Then he'll get an off day. Then he'll play nine. Then an off day. Then you try back-to-back. Like, you have to go through the whole progression. And it's like, why not just give him the first week off? Let Tyler Naquin play for a week. Let him – like, Naquin deserves it. That poor guy, he's – going to be in triple a forever but let him let him experience that for a week and, and let brantley slowly get back to it and then then let him let him loose after he misses the first road trip why not yeah. naquin I, I feel for the guy because there's not really anything he can do <laughs> he's no he's he's come out he's swung the bat really well in spring and i know they're not pitching to scouting reports and we don't have some of the data that we'd have in the regular season. So I don't know the percentage of breaking pitches that he's seen and compared to high heat and things that he can't handle, but he's come out. He's done everything that he's been asked to do. He's lining rocket shots all around the yard. I was at the game a couple days ago where he was three for three within the, the first three innings. And that was a game, by the way, Zach, in which the entire end of the game was everybody on the field was somebody that didn't have a name on the back of their Jersey and Ryan Hannigan, he was behind the plate. That team still managed to put up a five spot in the seventh inning. That was a long afternoon at Peoria Ballpark, I can tell you that. HBD team. <laughs> but, but Naquin, he, because he swings left-handed, where does he fit in an outfield that features Brantley and Chisenhall? But I don't – because the, we're talking about two guys that have been hurt a lot over the past few years – if he's ready and he maintains a solid outlook on this, you have to think he's going to get some opportunities at some point. And, and this kind of speaks to that weird depth that we were talking about. Naquin isn't a, uh, a true uh, impact difference maker that you plug out in the outfield and adds a couple of wins to your totals more than likely. But how many teams would he be starting for or certainly have a major league spot on? That, that, that kind of speaks to the type of depth that the Indians have right now. If he's the sequel to Joe Charbonneau, it's a pretty crappy sequel. But, like, <laughs> like Charbonneau won the Rookie of the Year in 1980, and they're making songs about him and stuff. Naquin has that crazy rookie year, and he has the inside of the park home run. Do you want to do your uh, Matt Underwood call? <laughs> You've, it's your favorite. You love it so much. They're waving um, him around. <laughs> and, and, like, they make T-shirts with his, uh, his hand symbol. And 
And like he's not that he was a toast of the town, especially after game six of the World Series. But then we never hear from him again. And he just he's buried at AAA for at least a year and probably two. Uh, there are some parallels there with Charbonneau. I don't think Naquin opens beer bottles with his eye socket, but um, I don't know. That guy's pretty intense. I wouldn't put it past him. But yeah, I mean, they have, they have weird depth. Uh, This is, it's almost like you just want to say, can we move on from like the Brantley Chisenhall, like even the Encarnacion era maybe, and like get some of these kids in there. Not, not, I'm not saying like, I'm not saying I like they'd be. What are you saying, Zach? I'm saying I just am very interested in, and I'm ready to see Diaz Mejia, maybe Naquin. I don't know about him. Play and get regular at bats. You are so you are so HBD'd out where you you can't wait to start your rebuild in Hardball Dynasty that you're waiting for it to play out in reality with the Indians before (laughs) they even win a title. That's what's really happening here. And you're so hell-bent on getting the Cleveland Rocks to the World Series and actually winning it before the Cleveland Indians do. Admit it. Before I get angry emails from people saying that I'm trying to chase Encarnacion out of town, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying, like, part of me wishes there was a parallel universe where we could at least just see what these young kids could do with a full season of at-bats. I, I, don't, I don't think necessarily that Yandy Diaz would put up the numbers Encarnacion would put up if he were to play and get 600 at bats this year, but it would be, I'm just, I'm interested. And I don't think Mejia or Diaz really have anything left to prove in the minors with their bats. Um, Yeah. No, I mean, I, I I get what, I get your point. I get your point on that. And Mejia maybe a little bit more seasoning, but Diaz for sure. We're we're learning nothing from him at AAA unless he completely changes his hitting outlook and we look down and he's hitting 55% of the balls in the air and he's pulling 60% of them. <laughs> That's the only thing that could truly blow me away about his AAA performance. I, I, I fully anticipate to see that he's hitting 350 down there. And especially in that ballpark, that's so conducive to offense that you're right. It would just be nice to see, how he would progress at the major league level, because I think that's where he could get the most of his development done. And I know they want him to focus on, uh, you know, paying attention to every single uh, ground ball that's hit his way. And they know that he actually has some pretty good range and he even surprises them with some of the plays that, that he makes, but sort of like Lindor early in his career, you know, occasionally he, he can miss a ball that's right to him. The routine one, because as a young player or a guy without a ton of experience, those can be easy to sort of fall asleep on. And, and I think they're just looking for some consistency for him. Not necessarily that they need him to be better over there, but maybe focused is the right word. That's the, that's the only thing I could think uh, to sort of translate what they've spoken to th- this past week. By the way, I looked it up. Michael Brantley last year, March 20th, was his Cactus League debut. This year, March 21st. It is possible. So he's behind. <laughs> He is behind, yes. Although he does have a, a few more repetitions in the cage this year than he did at this point last year. So the, I'm not ruling it out. I think it can happen. I think he, I think there's a real chance he's on the opening day roster. And then next year, his first game will be March 22nd? <laughs> For who? Well, true. Um, speaking of people named Mike, you have a uh, bold prediction for us about a certain member of the Indians starting rotation? I do. I know it's one that you kind of mirror as well. Just seeing Clevenger, 
watch what day was it uh, over the weekend whatever day it was um he had one brief period where he sort of lost the strike zone and this is when he's coming off of feeling ill and he said after the game he had lost seven pounds and he was in the process of putting it back on i told milsey that and he about fell over <laughs> he didn't even know um, he should but... follow the lebron program <laughs> yeah LeBron yeah seven pounds in a game i i, I suppose that's true but what I was impressed with, because we've seen Clevenger battle this in the past, where he can look sharp and, and great, and then he loses it, and then he can't reel it back in, and he's throwing a lot of pitches, and you know, he's out in the fourth inning just because he doesn't have the longevity, um, and he's not as efficient as he needs to be. And by the way, I think Linus has a friend in the hotel that I'm staying in. Um, this start, he was able to, he lost the strike zone, walks a couple of guys, allows a couple of runs, reels it back in, and then... Get back, gets back to being sharp for the rest of the outing. Now, he, afterwards, he's still pretty hard on himself, and I asked him if he, he has any plans of throwing 200 innings this year, if that's still a goal, and he said, well, not if I do what I did today and start dicking around and getting cute. But I, from what I've seen so far and I, the mentality that he has, he's a lot more, again, I guess the right word is focused is the best way you can put it. I think he is destined for a – if, if last year wasn't a breakout year for him, then definitely determine this to be a breakout year for him. I think he is going to wow some people and really put up some strong numbers. Yeah, we've seen glimpses. But, you know, he had a stretch last year. I think he had five five start stretch where his ERA was under one. And it's not a it's not a matter of does he have the stuff? Does he have the ability? It's a matter of can he string together you know a month's worth of six and seven inning starts? And, and can he? Can he be that guy where when he's starting, you're not, you're Terry Francona, you're not worried about, all right, well, good thing we have merit in the bullpen because we might need to go to the bullpen in the third or fourth inning if, if he loses the strike zone. And, and, and so you want him to be able to get, make 30 starts, throw 180 innings or more. And, and that's when you feel really good about it. And that's when, you know, that you, you look at what Kluber and Carrasco and Bauer can give you innings wise. And all of a sudden, your panics about, the bullpen and not having as much depth without Shaw and without Joe Smith, you know, those fears are kind of assuaged, assuaged. How do you say that word? Assuaged? Of course, of course. I think it's a, the, the big eye-opening uh, experience for Clevenger when you, when you watch him throw is when you sit directly behind home plate or, or, or somewhere close to that. I told you in San Francisco last year when – the press box was sort of set up to have a great view of it. And his stuff looks spectacular because there are times where I watch him on, I can, I can watch him on TV and it, I mean, he looks good, but it, I don't know that he look, really looks like elite stuff, but then you, you see what the batter's seeing and that stuff is filthy. And I don't know if it's some combination just of the pitches that he's throwing, uh, the sequencing in which he throws them in, or if the, the fact that he's got arms and legs and hair coming at you from every different angle and he's so sort of jumpy, I guess, in the mound <laughs> that it's a little bit intimidating. But when you see that angle of him throwing, you can see why, why hitters struggle to, to get after him. And the only thing that could be his worst enemy is just being predictable. And when he gets predictable, it's because he's behind in the count. And he's got to throw hittable pitches in counts that the, the, the batter knows that it's coming. When he goes ahead 0-1, or if he loses the strike zone, he comes back with that 1-1 pitch and gets ahead one, two, and he's got the hitter right or the batter. Yeah. The batter right. He wants him. I know that's the case for every pitcher, but him, especially that's what he is just completely unhittable. And he's got to continuously remind himself 
first pitch strike, get ahead, be aggressive. And I think that voice is still in the back of his head from Mickey Callaway to that extent. But I, I think the more that he grasps that and the more confidence that he gets, the more experience that he builds, you are going to see the Indians. You know, we, we talk about Kluber and Carrasco. I think Clevenger is going to be right there, right behind Carrasco, sort of nipping at his heels as to being somewhat similar in the same conversation. It's crazy to think about, you know, if that happens and then if, if Salazar were to ever get healthy and be able to stay healthy, like, the potential of that rotation is nuts, which is crazy to say after, you know, the numbers they put up last year when they were the best rotation statistically um, since Hoinsey started covering the team in 1842. But, you know, Corey, we always talk about, we hear Corey Kluber sets a good example. He, you know, he's someone you want to emulate in the days between your starts. And we always hear all those cliches like that. And we don't really know what exactly that means. Um, but here's one example. Um, you know, Clevenger met with – he was working with a trainer over the offseason who told him that, like, you know, like, like sports writers are the worst with this. We have terrible posture. When we're in the press box typing and watching a game, we're, like, leaning forward, so we're hunched like the hunchback in Notre Dame, and we, we, it's, it's terrible. And, like, then you stand up and you're, like, still hunched over and, and, and just – awful awful body awareness and posture and positioning and so this is important for a pitcher and if you notice when Corey Kluber walks and part of the reason he's called Klubot is because he looks like he's a robot but that's because he has perfect posture and he has that for a reason and he walks with a purpose and like you can tell that that took some getting used to and so Clevenger tried to emulate that this offseason and when he worked with his trainer the trainer was like hey your posture is not always great you need to stand up a certain way. You need to sit a certain way. You need to make sure, like, he's, he was always talking about, like, feeling his toes, knowing where his toes were, and, and making sure his back and his shoulders were positioned correctly. And so he now tries As to you're walk. doing all this, I'm now doing all of those things as I sit in this chair. I am, chair. too. Like, as I'm saying shoulders, I'm, like, sitting up. <laughs> um, I, and I have the worst posture, too. I mean, you've seen me after games. I lay down. And, and right, like I have to sit back in chair in one chair and put my feet up on another just because it's it's so terrible. But Clevenger, this it's helped him with his mechanics on the mound, because when he gets into those situations where he can't find the strike zone and his mechanics are out of whack. Now he just reverts back to the posture he is supposed to have all the time. And it's easy for him to – because he said he used to, when he got into those situations where he couldn't find the strike zone, and next thing you know, it's you know 5-1 in the third inning and he's out of the game, he would try to tweak something and then tweak another thing and then tweak another thing and, and just get so out of whack he could never get back to the basics. And now with this new posture and this new body awareness, he's able to just fix everything and, and get back to the program – he hopes right away and not fall down that, that tunnel or, or have that snowball effect. Yeah. I, I think it's going to, to lead to some pretty huge things for him. I, I do. I, I just even seeing his performance a little bit in spring, you can just see, see a little bit of a difference in mentality and, and I think just looking comfortable out there. I mean, this is a guy, as you know, had talked about just how, how ridiculously 
how much anxiety basically he's dealing with before and after these games. It'd be a spring out and he's going to go throw to Indians hitters and he's pacing back and forth and his legs are going every different direction. He looks more comfortable. Now, he said on the inside he's still going 100 miles an hour. I don't anticipate that to change. Um, but you're seeing just kind of his outward, uh, the way he handles himself, just a little bit more in control. And I think that's going to make all the difference for him because, as you said, the talent's there. He's got ridiculous stuff. Um, and I, I think he's. I think this is the year where it all comes together for him and he really uh, becomes what really a lot of people never thought he could be, uh, especially when the, the Angels gave up on him and, and dealt him over here for, for Vinny Pastano, which really is kind of an interesting thought if you think about it because someone reminded me of this a couple of days ago when I wrote about Eric Stamens. The Angels are, are going to eventually get to a point where they're not going to want to trade with the Indians anymore. He steals where they, they end up picking up somebody just for a stretch run or, or just for some depth, whether it's Pistano or, or a good guy, David Murphy. And they end up giving up guys that become Mike Clevenger, or even if Eric Stamets is just a journeyman utility guy with a little bit of pop, there's value in that, especially before they start making any money. <laughs> so the Angels are going to get to a point where they're just like, yeah, okay. The Indians are calling. We're good. I'm fine. I- the Angels. I mean, think about the the heists they had with the Mariners, where they got Shinsu Chu and Asherbal Cabrera for Ben Broussard and Eduardo Perez. Um, you know, the Dodgers with the Carlos Santana for Casey Blake trade. I mean, the Indians have had a, a lot of heists over the years. When was the last time that they were the ones who who just absolutely got crushed in a trade? Brandon Phillips. Even... Yeah, but that was. That Mark DeRosa? Cool. They, they wanted to jettison Phillips out of there. I mean, they could have Chris Archer in this rotation. True. Maybe that's the last one I can think of. But it, it, it's there. the scoreboard is, is certainly in their favor. But this also comes back to, when you know it, a hardball dynasty thought. If you're going to uh, make a trade, if you're going to get rid of somebody, everyone thinks, oh, I got to get an impact guy. I got to get somebody that does all this stuff well. I got to get it a starter, someone that's going to play for me all the time. Sometimes it's beneficial to make a trade for somebody that has one specific skill, like Eric Stamets, can really play defense. Okay, bet on that because there's value in somebody that can play elite defense all over the diamond. Is he going to be a star? Probably not. And there's no guarantee he even reaches the major league level, but you're now betting on that one skill. And then what happens? That guy with one skill makes an adjustment and he becomes a little bit more dangerous at the plate. He's sort of a diamond in the rough. But sometimes it it pays off to target somebody that that maybe is a little bit off the radar but possesses one thing you really like, so you bet on that one skill. And I think there's – I think names have done that in the past, and and maybe it doesn't always pay off. Like, where's James Ramsey at this point? (laughs) I I don't know what organization he's playing for right now. But I think there's some benefit there uh, in these situations to find somebody that – that maybe doesn't have the doesn't profile as a top prospect, but has something about them that you, they really like that you sort of bet on, and I think that's what they certainly did with with Stamets. Yeah, I mean humans are different than HPD players because humans can evolve more and and they can turn something that they were average at into a, a major skill. Um, but it, it's they they've just had such a good track record of. I mean, like you said, like David Murphy was a salary dump at, 
in a lost season where he was you you got two months of David Murphy for Eric Stamets. Like how how like well, why why would the Angels even like like everybody knew at that time that Stamets could pick it. That didn't seem doesn't seem worth it. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, at the time his bat was below average even for a minor leaguer. But why should two months of David Murphy cost anything? Yeah, I, no, I, I get your point. Um, and in this day and age where players are, are more aware of what could make them better hitters, if, if you have somebody with an elite defensive profile that is even remotely open to changing his mentality and his approach at the plate, you can make somebody that's kind of a useful player. And, and I, I, granted, we're talking about Eric Stamets, who has not even made it to the major leagues. We don't know if he'll make it to the major leagues. I mean, if, he, if they lose Urshela or, or Eric Gonzalez in the, the near future, then he slides up to the next line of defense. But still, it, it, someone you're talking about that could be a very useful player for three years before he hits arbitration. Yeah, uh, it's they've done well. They've done really well on the trade front. And I know it's much more difficult to do that sort of thing these days because teams with their analytics departments and their uh, scouting departments, everything is so much more advanced. You have a lot less information that other teams don't have. So, um, you know, you, you don't probably won't see the Bartolo Colon for Sizemore Phillips and Cliff Leet type trade anymore. Um, but They've done they've their track record is so impressive and, and they've just and, and you know what? It's almost it's, it's interesting to me that now, you know, there's still so many free agents out there. If you're a crappy rebuilding team and you don't have some player with potential to fill a certain spot, you might as well go sign one of those free agents and just know that you can flip them and, and maybe get something and and kind of follow the blueprint that the Indians laid out there with, with the David Murphy for Stamets trade. I mean, that can happen, can absolutely happen. And you can, you can sign someone who's better than David Murphy and, and get something better in return. I'm surprised that teams don't try that more often. Well, there's always time, and the game is constantly changing. So who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll see the Indians, again, set the bar like they did in the 90s with – team signing early extensions and now it could be make trades for marginal prospects and then turn them into something. I mean, they've done that many times over the past. And I think it to sort of bring this full circle, it shows in the type of depth that they have, you know, we're talking about the depth being kind of weird because it might, other than Mejia, maybe it's not a lot of high end talent, but they have a lot of guys that could probably play major league baseball for somebody. And that's sort of the, the way that they've, they've made trades in the past. You know, they don't necessarily target stars because those are really hard to come by now in a, in a trade. But if you can kind of target guys that look like fringe major leaguers or, or even a little bit better, um, and then you, you trust your, your, your coaching staff to get the most out of those players and then just have a bunch of those guys so that you can bet on them, I think that's a that's – a, that's at least one way to build a, a winning team if you're not always picking at the high end of the draft every year. Well, good luck to your uh, HBD team tonight. Yeah, down 2-1 in the series to you. I don't like it. I don't like when my ramp manager pulls my ace reliever three pitches into his outing after he gave up a home run, and then it was an error. 
We don't need to pull him out of the game, especially for the guy that got bombed in game one. Anyways, he clearly cares. And uh, what could be the final start of Anuri Escobar's uh, Cleveland Rocks tenure this evening, unless he's well, able to uh, shut you guys down? For both of our sake, I hope that's that, – wait, no. If he makes another start for you, that would mean that you advanced. So I guess either way, I'm screwed. Anyways, you can follow the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Anchors, on Overcasts, on Pocket Casts, and like a million other ways that we're still – uh, finding ways to get the podcast out to you, but we thank all of you that have listened um, throughout the the weeks as and months as we've kind of gained some steam. And we recently made a change in our podcasting type, and I, th- I think they're even maybe even Zach making some more changes to our podcast. But what? those that continue to stick by us, yeah, I think they're going to make all of us under the same athletic umbrella, so they'll be able to find all of our podcasts somewhere. I don't know. There's there's some things in the works. I've been told, but anyway. I appreciate all of us. The point is that have stuck with us throughout all of our changes and continue to find us on Apple podcasts, which it's still there. So if you have Apple podcasts, it's still the easy, easiest way to find us. And of course we post the podcast every single week at the athletic.com slash Cleveland. You know, we had some, some lean, lean times over the winter where there was nothing to talk about. (laughs) And it's nice to know that we've survived all that. And starting next, by the time we do this again, we'll know the roster. We'll be hours away from opening day. We'll have actual things to talk about and to preview. And we can get back to doing our uh, random Indian segment. Oh, that would be fun. And all the while, people will be able to line up their shots and get drunk listening to the Selby is Godcast. Until next week, for Zach Meisel, I'm TJ Zuppi. Thanks for listening. We're out of here. Oh,